a week down in Guatemala, um, going around looking at mission opportunities for our church. That was in a little village out in the middle of nowhere called San Miguel. And in San Miguel, we met this, uh, this couple named David and Amanda. Yes, American names in the middle of Guatemala. <laughs> uh, but they were a, a, an awesome couple. And while we're there, uh, they pull out this old hymnal, a Baptist hymnal uh, in Spanish, in the middle of a predominantly Catholic village, and they decided, or she decided she wanted to sing us a hymn. So she sat down and she sang that hymn to us, and it was one of my favorite parts of the whole week, besides the tacos and the Mexican pizza, which was also incredible. Now, this was an incredible time that we had together. Um, David and Amanda, they're out in the middle of nowhere. They're probably, how old would you say, Craig, in their 70s probably? Uh, David's got a ton of health issues, yet they are serving faithfully in this little village to see their village, their people, come to know Jesus. Um, David runs a feeding program down there, which has been shut down since COVID started, but is getting ready to hopefully launch back up. But they serve faithfully. They want their, the people in that community in San Miguel to know the real Jesus, not some false Jesus that's being taught. They want them to know the real Jesus. And as you might imagine, their life's not easy. Uh, we went into another village called Pacaya. If you've traveled with Clubhouse Guatemala, you've probably been to Pacaya before. Um, the, that was their house that we were sitting in. The houses in Pacaya are dirt floors, tin roofs. And this looks like a mansion compared to what we saw in Pacaya. Yet in both places, people serve faithfully. David is struggling health-wise. He had a a stroke. He, he had some health issues two years ago, almost died, and then the last year he's had a stroke. Um, yeah, he's still joyful. There was obviously a communication barrier. I don't speak the language, but you could see the joy in their faces just because they're serving Jesus. Even in the midst of all the economic issues, the poverty that they're in, and David's health issues, they are serving joyfully for people to know who Jesus is. We live in a, a society, I think we would all agree, that has very different expectations. Um, life is anything but simple for us. Their life is complicated because of the issues that they face, but it's still a very simple life. Life for us is anything but simple. Who has a packed calendar? Would you raise the house lights for me, Jonesy? Who has a packed calendar? So half of you all have nothing to do during the week, really? No, really. Who has a packed calendar? Most of us would raise our hand for that. Uh, who goes through just stressed out all the time because there's so much going on? I knew that group back there would all be like, yeah, that's me, because they're just now figuring out what it means to be an adult. Isn't that right, Nathan Hickman? <laughs> Actually, that's Hunter that's figuring that out. Nathan's already got it, right? Uh-huh, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. Um, we have packed calendars. We have life's pressures to deal with us that are just coming in on us all the time. Um, bills to pay. Jobs that we got to deal with all the time. Um, some of us have families that we're trying to raise. Uh, health issues. There's just so many things that come in on our lives that give these pressures that are unique to our society, to Western culture, or to culture who has advanced per se. We see in Guatemala this couple who's living a joyful life, and here 
We struggle just getting by day to day, even though we have all the resources that we may ever want. You may be in here thinking, well, I don't. I, I, I don't have a lot of extra money. To them, you would be extremely wealthy. The, the, most, the, the people in the lowest part of poverty in America are wealthy to the village we just came from. But what if there is a, a secret in the midst of our busy lives that would bring us joy? That, that would bring us some purpose, some meaning in life? What if there's this secret that we can get the joy that we see just sitting down because there's some strangers in their house, they want to share Jesus in song with them? What if that joy that we saw on their face is available to us? There's a secret that we could go to that would tell us that. Would you want to know the answer to that? Because I would. Because joy is sometimes hard to find in life. It's just so busy and so overwhelming. Today we're continuing in the, our series, Reboot, looking at the next section, or the, really just the end of chapter 1 of the letter to the Colossians. And we are going to look at this morning five characteristics of a life that will bring joy if you live out this life. Um, it's really five characteristics of how we can get to the better life. And when I talk about the better life, I'm not talking about what society in America tells us the better life is. I'm talking about what a real, fulfilling, joyful life. Five characteristics that can help us get there. Last week we talked about Jesus, and He was supreme, and He was sufficient. In other words, we're saying Jesus is everything. He is the creator of all things. He is in charge of all things. He's sovereign over all things, and He is enough. Jesus is more than we could ever ask for. Jesus is enough. We talked about how we may chase uh, fulfillment in other areas, but Jesus is enough. And this week, we're going to learn a secret that even the Old Testament saints had no idea what the answer was. We're going to learn a secret that Moses didn't have the answer to, a secret that Abraham or David didn't have the answer to, a secret that wasn't revealed until Jesus was born and walked on this earth, a secret that once realized will change your entire outlook on life, or it should. It will lead us to a critical thought change, a, a way that we view life. The question isn't, when we look at our faith, what can I get? But the question is, how much will God let me give? And we're not talking about financial giving. That could be a part of it. We're talking about everything. How much will God let us give? How much does He require of us? So now I have a question for you. How many of you all in this room are called into ministry? Raise them high so I can see them. Okay, put them down. Now we're going to try that again. How many of you all in this room are called into ministry? Every single hand in the room should be raised. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, your calling is into ministry. And you're probably thinking, no, I'm not going to stand up there and preach. I'm not going to be an elder. I'm not going to be a deacon, whatever it may be. 
That's not what I'm talking about. Our calling is into ministry because when we look in Scripture at what a minister is, a minister is really a servant of Christ. Someone who is serving people for Jesus to share the gospel. All of us, you are a minister. You may not have that as a profession. You may not have ever surrendered to a call of ministry or whatever it may be. Your calling in your life is to be a minister, to be a servant of Christ. But we live in a society where serving is not a very popular thing to do. Uh, we might do it because it makes us feel good sometimes, but primarily we don't like to serve as a general rule for people in the Western culture. We like to serve self. We don't like to serve others. And we really don't like to serve Jesus as a society, as a whole. Let's just think about some symptoms of that. We don't say that you're required to go to church in order to be saved. But church is an indication that you are in love with Jesus and you want to spend time with Jesus' people. In 1998, over 70% of the population in America would claim to be a part of a church. That means maybe not that they go every Sunday, but they are a part of a church. They, they view that as being a valued part of their life, an important part of their life. Today, less than 50% of people in America would say they are a part of a church. It's dropped over 20% in just, what is that, 24 years. And it's now at a more rapid decline in recent years than it was in the decade before that. They've actually been a study that came out recently that said today, 60 or 70, I can't remember the exact number, of people in America would claim to be Christian. Even if they're not a part of a church, they would claim to be a Christian. But within the next 20 years, that will be the minority. And less than 40% they are projecting of people in America will claim Christ as their Savior or claim any sort of relationship with Christ. So over the last 24 years, we've seen... The, the faith numbers, the survey of people who claim faith just nosediving. And at the exact same time that's been happening, we've seen rapid rises in things like depression, rapid increases in suicide rates, rapid decreases in what people report as their satisfaction with life, whether they're satisfied with where they're at. We've seen rapid increases in divorce rates. So that makes you wonder, could there be a connection? If we've seen society take a nosedive with our faith, at the same time taking these increases in those areas I just mentioned, do you think there might be a connection with that? I think there is an obvious connection with that. As someone of faith, I think that there is a huge connection with that. So let's dig into the scriptures today and see how we can reboot, how we can get back to that area of life where we're finding joy and satisfaction. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Well, that's a weird way to start, right? I'm rejoicing in my sufferings. Probably not something we're all rejoicing about. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, which, of which 
I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So Paul opens this portion of the letter that he's written to the Colossians. He's just written about the supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ. And now he begins talking about what ministry, specifically his ministry, looks like. And he says he's rejoicing in his sufferings and a mystery has been revealed of the ages. He's saying there is this mystery that's available, the answer to which uh, answers the question of where do we find joy, where do we find satisfaction. Now you may remember, if you were here the last two sessions of this study in Colossians, that there was a heresy being taught in the Colossian church. And ultimately, the heresy comes down to the biggest part of it was what we know today as Gnosticism. We're not going to dig into what Gnosticism is, but generally, they were teaching that they knew a secret Jesus or a secret God that only they had access to. If you were not not a part of their secret group, their society, whatever you want to call it, then you did not have access to this deeper knowledge of God. And Paul is saying in this passage, yeah, there is a mystery. There is a secret about who God is, who Jesus is. But you don't have the answer. Only God has the answer. And he's saying this is the answer to all of it. It's the answer to every issue that you face in life. It's the answer to where you find joy, where you find hope, where you find satisfaction. It is the answer to all of that. And it is a secret that God has revealed to the saints. So who wants to know the answer? Now, you're supposed to answer that. Who wants to know the answer? What is the secret that God has? And what is the secret that He has revealed? Verse 27, He says, To them, to the saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. And here's your answer. Which is Christ in you. The hope of glory. That is the answer to the mystery. That's the the secret ingredient. Christ in you, the hope of glory. There it is. Now, there's a pretty important word in this that I want you to pick up on. Because most of us live life in a way where we say, I'm a a Jesus follower or I'm a Christian and when I need help I'm going to call on Jesus. In other words, we're in a partnership together. I heard it described this week in one of the the things I was looking at preparing uh, as a tag team kind of thing. Who likes wrestling? Three people in the room like wrestling, but this is still the illustration I got, so it's what we're going with. Uh, Who has at least watched wrestling before? Okay, there we go. Most of us have watched. Who's seen a tag team match before? That's what he's comparing it to. He, He was like, you're in the ring and you're wrestling against whoever, for the championship of wrestling, whatever that's called. I don't know what that's called. What? The Hart Brothers? I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) Really, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) But you're wrestling, and you're getting beat. The guy's coming at you. You're starting to lose. So you get over to the edge of the ring, and you tap in or tap out and tag in your, your wrestling partner. 
And they come in and they take care of everything, beat down the guy, and you win the match. That's how we look at life with Jesus a lot of times. I'm struggling in whatever area of life it is. I really need help in my finances. I really need help because my children are terrible. I've got to figure out why they're acting this way. My job is terrible. I don't know how to deal with my boss. School is just overwhelming. So then we go and we tap in Jesus so that he can come fix the problem. And as soon as he fixes the problem, or we feel like he's fixed the problem, we tap him out and we go about business. But Paul says the secret isn't tag-teaming with Jesus. The secret is Christ in you. But there's the key word, Christ in you. It's not Christ and you. It's not Christ and your tag team partner or Jesus and and your tag team partner or you and your tag team partner, however you want to word it. It is Jesus in you. You see, the secret as a believer is if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, like really accepted Him, not just prayed a prayer, like really committed your life to Jesus and said, He's who I want to follow. He is in you. He is indwelling you. The Holy Spirit indwells you. Christ is in you. That is the secret. It's not and. It is in. It's not a partnership. It is Jesus in you. When we begin to understand that and begin to grasp that concept as hard as it is to understand, and we begin to really believe that, it changes everything with your outlook on life. It gives you the ability to be in a third world country like we saw on that video, still loving Jesus, even though you don't know where your next meal is going to come from. Even though you barely have any access to any resources. Joy in Jesus because Christ is in you. So how do we live that out? Verse 28 through 29. We proclaim, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. The secret is Christ in you. Your response is to serve Him. To serve His purpose. To be a minister of the gospel. The question isn't, what do I get out of this? It's, how much will God let me give? How much will God let me sacrifice for His mission? You see... He has already done all of the work. He he has completed in you what He needs to complete. He supplies. He not only did the work, He supplies the power for you to accomplish what He wants you to accomplish. And we could easily have the tendency to say, all right, Jesus, it's yours. Jesus, take the will, right? That's terrible theology. Good song, kind of. Terrible theology. It's not... Sitting back and let Jesus take in control. It is, Jesus is in control. Now let's get on mission with Jesus and do what he called us to do. 
So what are five characteristics of what this look like, looks like? Five characteristics of what a servant of Christ looks like even in a world that is unchristian and hostile to what we have to share with them. Well, if we look at what Paul's talking about here and we transpose that to our life or extrapolate that to our own lives with what Paul is saying about his ministry, here's what we see. Serving involves suffering. That's the first characteristic. Probably not the best place to start if I want to get you all in on this, is it? It's where Paul started, though. He says, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake. Serving involves suffering. We read about some of Paul's suffering over in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Here's what Paul says, verse 23. If I can find it, where's verse 23? I need my other glasses. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, and often without food in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, of my anxiety for all the churches. Who's excited about serving now? If your idea of serving has very little suffering attached to it, it is not a biblical idea of serving. Serving always requires some form of suffering. Hopefully, not to the extent that Paul faced. I mean, Paul was uh, historically believed to have been beheaded when he was around, I think, 58 years old. I mean, that's a way to suffer right there. Serving requires suffering. And and Paul talks in this. He says, uh, up in that verse 24, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of His body, that is, the church. Now that's a verse that can confuse a lot of people. What do you mean Jesus died on the cross which is enough for to pay for everything yet Paul's saying I'm filling up Christ's afflictions that are lacking. What in the world could that possibly mean? That word affliction is never used of the cross. When, when we talk about Christ's sacrifice on the cross The word affliction is never used of that. The word affliction in Scripture is used for more of a a human condition kind of thing, like suffering in our daily lives or the pressures of normal life. In other words, Paul's saying he did all the work on the cross, but life is still going to be difficult. He suffered, now it is your turn to suffer for Him. That's why Jesus says, take up your cross if you want to follow me. Take up suffering for me because to follow Jesus isn't a cakewalk. 
There is always suffering. There is always affliction that goes along with it. It is our turn. And actually, we see in Scripture, it's not only our turn, it is our privilege to suffer for Christ. Now, who's in on, on serving? If ser- your serving does not involve any sort of suffering, then you're probably not giving as much as He's called you to give. We also see in this passage that serving is a form of stewardship. We see that in verse 25, of which I became a mister according to the stewardship from God. In other words, what stewardship is, is taking care of something that belongs to someone else. Like, if Santa Joe wanted to give me his reindeer, and I cared for them throughout the year, I am stewarding his reindeer. That's what stewardship really is. It's to care for others' belongings. You are called to steward the gospel, to steward God's word, which means to care for it and to make sure it's used in a way that points people towards Jesus. We are called to steward with our abilities to serve other people because all people, whether they are believers in Jesus or not, are God's people. They are His belongings. We are called to steward that, to care for others, to care for who He has put in our sphere of influence and to make sure we are sharing with them the word of truth. You are called to serve. Serving is not an option for us. Are you a servant? Are you willing to give of your time, your talents? Are you willing to give up things in your life in order to go serve Jesus? It is not an option. We are required to serve. If it wasn't a requirement on us, none of us would be here. I say that because if all it was, if the only requirement on our life was to commit our life to Jesus, then the minute you do that, poof, you're going to heaven. You've done it. But He calls you to more than that. He calls you to commit your life to Him as Lord and then get out of the seat and go serve Him. Sacrifice for Him. Suffer for Him. Steward. Take care of what He has given you. Suffering also brings some really good surprises. Paul talks about how he, has, he rejoices in his sufferings. That's a pretty big surprise. He's able to rejoice in the suffering that he's facing on behalf of the ministry of Christ. When he faces all of the things that I just talked about from 2 Corinthians, he doesn't get upset about it, he doesn't run away, he rejoices that he has been given the opportunity to suffer for Christ. How many non-Christians do you know who rejoice when things don't go the way they expected them to go? When they get attacked for no reason at all. How many non-Christians do you know who, when they lose a loved one, are able to have a peace about it? I don't believe a non-Christian can do this. It is impossible, I think, for someone who doesn't follow Jesus to really have joy in the midst of life's valleys. It's easy to have joy on the mountaintop. But when we hit rock bottom, as a Christian, we know this isn't it. We know that if we continue serving our purpose, we can have Jesus. 
There's more to it. You know what else we see here? Maybe one of the greatest surprises for us. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. You know, if you read the Old Testament, we're kind of left out. The Old Testament is Jewish-focused. The Old Testament is all focused on God's reconciling the Jewish people, this mic is terrible, to himself. Ultimately, it is the story of reconciling all people to himself, but we don't get a lot of love in the Old Testament. We get left out a lot. But here's the surprise that we get. He says, even you, as a Gentile, this is open to you. That means everyone is on equal footing. No matter how old you are, no matter what your economic background is, no matter what your race is, you are on equal footing before Jesus. If you are in this room and you're wealthy, we need to talk for starters because we've got to build a building. But if you're in this room and you're wealthy, you are no better on better footing than David and Amanda in Guatemala living in that little tiny house. We are all on equal footing before God, and that is something we should celebrate. There are good surprises as we follow Jesus, and he always has these little surprises that come along the way that just bring about joy and satisfaction in what we're doing. Serving includes surprises, but here's the one that all of y'all are going to balk at. Maybe not all of you, most of you. Serving also includes speaking. You've got to use your voice. So one of y'all are coming up here to preach next week. Who's in? Nathan? It'll keep you awake. Maybe. Maybe not. Who knows? I'm not saying that everyone in this room is, is called to come up here and preach the word. Some of you are. Some of you need to step up and do that. But that's not everyone's calling on life. You know what everyone's calling is, though? Well, let's, let's read what Paul writes here in verse 28. Him we, who did he say? Him we, not him I, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He doesn't say, my ministry is to go and to teach and to proclaim and to warn. He says, we, all believers, we are called to use our voices to speak. We are all called to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We are all called to warn others of the danger of not following Jesus Christ. We are all called to Teach others how to follow Jesus Christ. We are all called to one mission, which is our mission statement as a church. Make disciples. You have to speak in order to do that, which means you have to become a mature follower of Jesus so that you can help others become a mature follower of Jesus. He says right here, that is the goal. Present everyone as mature in 
Christ. That is your job. That's not my job. It's all of ours. Together, making disciples. Are you serving? Are you being a minister of what He has given you? Are you suffering at all for your ministry? Are you willing to give anything up? Because I'll tell you what, discipleship, it costs time. Discipleship can cost some pain and some tears, especially with the guys that I'm discipling, because they're difficult. Discipleship can cost you money. It, it could cost you having to go to Guatemala or to another part of the world in order to make disciples. Are you suffering? Are you stewarding what he's given you? Are you using your voice? Because here's the last thing that he says. It's not easy. Serving takes work. And it takes a lot of work. And it means you give up sometimes things that you really enjoy in order to become a servant. Verse 29, as he closes this out, For this I toil, struggling. It's not easy. Serving should be a difficult thing. If it's not, you're not serving. If it's easy, if it's not costing you a sacrifice, if it's not taking your time, your, your resources, your energy, you are not really serving. It should be exhausting. It should cost you something. Serving takes work. And, but this is the good part. He says he's struggling with all his energy. That he powerfully works within me. See, it's not on you. It's Jesus filling you. Jesus giving you his power as you mature in Christ in order to serve and do the things that he's called you to do in order to make disciples. He doesn't leave us on our own to do it. The goal is spiritual maturity. That is the ultimate goal, and all we do is to make disciples, to bring people to spiritual maturity so that they can make disciples. So the question isn't, what do I get out of this? What do I get out of church? Why do I come on Sunday mornings? What do I get out of this? We ask that a lot of church. What am I going to get out of that life group? What am I going to get out of whatever it may be? But the question shouldn't be, what am I getting out of it? It should be, how much is God going to let me give for the ministry? Are you willing to give it all for Him? You are called to be a servant. You aren't called to work in an office, to be a salesman. You're not called to even go to a certain school, to pursue a certain degree. You're not called to any profession per se. You are called to be a minister, a servant of the gospel. You know what happens when we follow through with this? Well, first, Paul says we will begin to rejoice in areas where we couldn't rejoice before. But you know what really happens when we begin to grow in maturity? You begin to recognize the falsehoods that the world is teaching. You begin to recognize, you know, so-and-so said this on television. This politician said this. Even sometimes 
this pastor said this. But that's not true. Because I know I've grown in maturity in my faith. You begin to recognize those things by studying. You begin to recognize those things by getting involved in a discipleship relationship. So how does it play out for us? Here's my challenge for you guys this week. How many life groups do we have, Scott? Four. We got four life groups. Some of you should be leading another life group. Oh, but I'm not equipped. I don't want people in my house. I don't want to spend time studying so that I can give a lesson. We're called to make disciples. That's going to require you sacrificing and studying and learning. Some of you need to step up and lead a life group. Some of you just need to step up and get in a life group. You've not even made that small commitment in order to, to grow in your faith and discipleship. Just a, a life group is like an hour and a half a week, and most of that is eating. They're pretty great. Some of my best friends have come out of life groups over the years. Most of my best friends have come out of life groups over the years. I mean, if we're honest, this church generated out of a life group out of our old church. Some of you, you need to go down and put in your application this week and get your passport because you're called to go somewhere on a mission trip. We don't know where we're going next year. Craig and I went. We explored opportunities in Guatemala. Maybe it's there, maybe it's not. But we feel like God's leading us somewhere in the next year on a mission. You can't get a passport in six weeks, usually. You'll get it now. Be prepared. Be ready to go where he's calling you to go. Uh, some of you need to start coming on Wednesday nights. On Wednesday nights, we're digging into just basic theology, basic doctrines of the church. It's pretty easy stuff. Now, I'm not going to lie to you and say it's a lot of fun. I mean, I enjoy talking about it, but it, it's a hard topic. You know, you may come and be challenged. But some of you need to show up to that. You need to start growing in your faith. Can you even explain to people what our core doctrines are? If someone challenges you on an area of theology, do you have any background to be able to answer the question? That's what we're doing on Wednesday nights, is digging into those core doctrines. It's not a deep theology study. It's just covering the basics. All of you, you need to make a commitment to love God, to love his people, and to make disciples. It's not an option. It's not an option for us to say, let whoever else get out there and serve. He's called you to do it. And maybe you've never felt that calling because you've never responded to Jesus at all with your life. That's the first step. He's calling you right now into a relationship with him. If you'd bow your heads.